Good afternoon. This is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest. Today is the 12th of July, 2021. I always like it after the 12th because that means I can write the date the way that I prefer, which is to put, of course, um, the calendar day first, then the month, and then the year. And I really can't do that until after you reach the 12th of every month because, well, I'm sure you understand why. Uh, because there's less ambiguity, right? In fact, there is no ambiguity. Okay. So today, uh, that was a, just a little aside of how I like to put my uh, uh, date signatures. I know it's not relevant to today's discussion, which is, of course, on amino acid metabolism. Uh, la last couple of lectures on the podcast... And even, I think, one of the video lectures, I have been emphasizing some of the pillars of biochemistry and uh, also some physiology. I'm doing that because I want to have all of the uh, threads pulled together so that when we finish this long arc of aging in humans, that I can refer, as I've said before, to various biochemical pathways and pathophysiological consequences of corruptions of those pathways when I lead into the morbidity and then finally the mortality that is a resultant of uh, the end of human life. And that is all, of course, associated with the aging process. So bear with me if you have heard amino acid metabolism before. You haven't heard from me in quite a while, although I have talked about it. I've gone back and looked at my records. It's been a few years since we've covered it on the podcast, and also I don't think I've done it in quite a while on the video, uh, YouTube video feed. Anyway, let's get right into it. I like to talk about amino acid metabolism first by talking about uh, proteolytic degradation of polypeptides. So if you look at a common dietary protein, it doesn't really matter which one it is. You, of course, with proteins, you have an amino terminus, a carboxy terminus, uh, amino terminus, and then a carboxy terminus. And in between, you have the peptide bonds. And the various uh, proteases that work to digest protein in the gut have a specific sequence uh, wherein they will cleave that polypeptide. So we have particularly these enzymes, trypsin, chymotrypsin, elastase, and then carboxypeptidases A and B. Those are the most common digestive uh, proteolytic enzymes in the gut. Trypsin, of course, has to be converted uh, first from trypsinogen via another enzyme called enteropeptidase. But trypsin will cleave immediately after arginine and lysine residues. Chymotrypsin, which of course is synthesized from chymotrypsinogen, also due to the enteropeptidase activation. So that enzyme, that, that peptidase is acting as a convertase, right? So you have chymotrypsin, that cleaves after the amino acids tryptophan, tyrosine, phenylalanine, methionine, and leucine. The enzyme elastase comes from proelastase, and you actually synthesize elastase via the convertase enzymes, either procarboxypeptidase A or procarboxypeptidase B, which then also form carboxypeptidase A and carboxypeptidase B. I can tell you where those cleave. They cleave proximal to 
alanine, isoleucine, leucine, and valine, or when it's carboxypeptidase B, they'll cleave uh, proximal as right before arginine or lysine. The elastase I was telling you about, which enteropeptidase can also do the uh, phylosynthesis of, the conversion of, uh, will cleave um, distal to alanine, glycine, and serine. So you have this host of proteases with uh, sequence specificity, which will cleave dietary proteins into peptides. And those peptides are finally fully digested by proteases with no specificity. They are just endoproteases uh, going into the peptide bond included within a longer peptide or exopeptidases, which are ultimately yield then individual amino acids. So there's a lot to say about proteases, and I have done this uh, because proteases are really essential to understand many pathophysiological states. And don't worry, we are going to cover them again. I know I have not that long ago. We're going to cover them again when we do the grand finale. So what is the metabolic fate of the amino acids that we just uh, were able to uh, produce from dietary protein? So let's take a look at that. Glycine is converted to serine, serine to three phosphoglyceric acids. So that can be used either for a glycolytic pathway or the gluconeogenesis, which is the opposite of the same movement up and down that pathway. So glycine, serine entering at three, three PGA level. Glycine and serine can also, of course, be uh, enter the glycolytic or uh, yeah, the glycolytic cycle primarily, I should say, at the level of pyruvate. Alanine can also, of course, be converted to pyruvate. That's a simple transaminase reaction on that account. Asparagine converted to aspartate will then be converted to oxaloacetic acid because of transamination. Histidine, arginine, glutamine, and proline can all be converted to glutamic acid, which, of course, because of transaminase can be converted to alpha-ketoglutarate. And both that alpha-ketoglutarate and oxaloacetic acid, and also the pyruvate entering uh, the TCA cycle via the synthesis of either OAA or acetate, um, will all run the TCA cycle. So those are the non-essential amino acid fate in terms of catabolism, or in the case of gluconeogenesis, anabolism. The essential amino acids, uh, plus we will add, we'll throw in there cysteine and tyrosine are the following, <clears throat> threonine will go to glycine, and of course glycine is serine to 3-PGA. Tryptophan will go to alanine, will go to pyruvate. Cysteine will go to pyruvate. Threonine will go to glycine, serine, pyruvate. Threonine could also be directly converted to pyruvate, so there's two different pathways there. Lysine, tyrosine, isoleucine, leucine, and indeed tryptophan will all be converted to acetoacetate, which is, of course, a ketone body, but that could be easily converted to acetyl-CoA and then into the GCA cycle. Um, threonine methionine can be converted to alpha-ketobutyrate, and valine and isoleucine can be converted to propionyl-CoA. Alpha-ketobutyrate will also be converted to propionyl-CoA, which is then converted to succinyl-CoA. Phenylalanine tyrosine, uh, those two aromatics will be converted to fumarate. So you've got succinyl-CoA, fumarate, acetyl-CoA, all of which can enter easily 
the TCA cycle for bioenergetics or for the anaplerotic activities of the TCA cycle. So that gives you an idea of the fate of dietary amino acids if you're not counting protein synthesis. And of course, that's occurring in the small intestine to make a very important uh, class of proteins called chylomicrons so that lipids can, en can enter into um, their long migration in uh, circulation and then therefore ultimately link up with hepatic um, portal vein and after redistribution, go through the rest of the lipoprotein pathways, you know, VLDL, IDL, LDL, and then ultimately coming back through, uh, cycling back to the liver is HDL. And we've talked about those in the past, but we will again, as uh, I promise. So you kind of already understand you have essential and non-essential amino acids. I won't mention all the non-essentials, but the essentials most commonly are histidine, isoleucine, leucine, lysine, methionine, phenylalanine, threonine, tryptophan, and valine. Now, arginine, cysteine, and tyrosine are called conditional essential because they can be synthesized via um, natural biosynthetic pathways in, in the human. However, they're sometimes not made in sufficient quantity so that you can actually make all the polypeptides that are necessary. So because of that, they are considered conditionally essential. All the other amino acids are not essential, which means you synthesize them directly from carbon and amino sources that you already are capable of synthesizing de novo. Okay. So amino transferase reactions will take a, an amino acid and an alpha keto acid uh, and convert them to a new amino acid into a new alpha keto acid just by moving the alpha amino group. That's what amino transferase reactions do. Many of those reactions I just told you for the fate of, of basically all that carbon uh, running into the TCA cycle or other glycolysis, gluconeogenesis. Of course, ultimately, TCA cycle will provide carbon for fatty acid cholesterologenesis. <clears throat> all of that ultimately utilizes the specificity of transaminases, which is how I've learned uh, those enzymes way back then. But they're also called aminotransferases, identical um, uh, uh, enzymatic activity. And I just explained to you basically what they do. I'm not telling you about the mechanism, right? Now, there are, of course, specific aminotransferases for specific amino acids. So there is alanine aminotransferase. And they will take alanine and alpha-ketoglutarate and it will synthesize pyruvate and glutamate. And it will also carry out the back reaction, glutamate and pyruvate, glutamate and pyruvate, going back to alanine and alpha-KG. This allows you to enter uh, the either amino acid pool or directly and somewhat indirectly, because pyruvate, of course, can be converted to lactate, um, the TCA cycle. Okay. So bioenergetics... Uh, is coupled to amino acid utilization. And these amino transferases provide that pathway, that conduit, right? Now, <clears throat> valine can be converted to alpha-ketoisovaleric acid. Now, alpha-ketoisovalerate is also a, a more chemically just defined as 3-methyl-2-oxobutanoic acid, just so you can picture the structure if, you're, if you have any organic chemistry background. Now, that conversion, which is a transamination of valine, will take valine and alpha-ketoglutarate and make glutamate and then also alpha-ketoisovalerate. 
Okay. So that's one unique reaction. This is how you take valine, transaminate it, make glutamate, and also this ketoisovaleric acid, which has another cellular fate. So in urine, you can look at the amount of that, a formation of that alpha ketoisovaleric acid uh, in micromole per millimole of creatinine. And with adults over the age of 18, uh, and if they're male and they're otherwise healthy, that value in urine can be anywhere from zero to 0.54 micromole per millimole. Now, if, if female, it's a different number. There, it's more about 0.01 to 0.45. So it's actually within the same range. Again, it, typically, uh, there isn't enough of a difference between male and female as long as you have healthy and as long as you look at age distribution. Now, there is a branch chain alpha keto dehydrogenase complex. We talked about these just last time, the BCAAs and aging in the video podcast. So branch chain alpha keto dehydrogenase complexes catalyze the overall conversion of alpha keto acids, basically acyl-CoA and carbon dioxide. There are three enzymatic components here. There's the branch chain alpha keto acid decarboxylase. We call it E1 in the polyprotein complex. There's lipoamide, you've heard of this before, acyltransferase, which is E2. And then you have lipoamide dehydrogenase, which is E3. Now, defects in this enzyme, the branch chain alpha keto dehydrogenase, are the cause of what's known as maple syrup urine disease type 1B, and that for short, that's called MSUD1B. So MSUD, right, that particular maple syrup urine disease is actually an autosomal recessive disorder. It's characterized by mental and physical retardation, feeding issues, and a maple syrup odor to the urine. Ultimately, propionyl-CoA is converted to succinyl-CoA from that, when that reaction is functioning, and then, of course, from succinylcholine to oxaloacetic acid. And when you're in a gluconeogenic state, that's what it'll be utilized for. Let's talk about acetoacetate. That's 3-oxobutanoic acid. It's produced in the human liver under certain conditions of poor metabolism. And it leads to excessive fatty acid breakdown. Diabetes mellitus leads to diabetic ketoacidosis, in fact. So you make a lot of this when you have poor metabolism, and that then leads to this excessive beta oxidation, right? That's what we're telling you. Partially converted to acetone, the acetoacetate, that is, by a decarboxylation reaction, and then it's excreted either in the urine or through respiration, and you can smell the acetone on the breath of a diabetic. Persistent mild hyperketonemia is common in newborns, the source of energy, in fact, for not extrahepatic, shouldn't say non-hepatic, extrahepatic tissues, uh, especially for the brain and the lung, is acetoacetate. It provides, of course, not just what we just told you, uh, acetone, which is not a product that can be utilized. It provides, as from acetoacetyl-CoA, you can make acetyl-CoA, and then acetyl-CoA can be utilized biosynthetically for cholesterologenesis, fatty acid, biosynthesis, and of course, ultimately complex lipid structures which make up membranes. Now, during the early postnatal period, 
acetoacetate and the other ketone body, beta-hydroxybutyrate, are preferred actually over glucose as substrates for the synthesis of phospholipids and sphingolipids in accord with requirements for brain growth and the all-important myelination where sphingolipids are, of course, utilized. So again, recall that acetoacetate is converted to beta-hydroxybutyrate uh, by taking NADH and converting it to NAD, and the back reaction is the same, right? Only there it's NAD making NADH. So we can talk quickly about the disposal of amino acids. Uh, you talk about the amino group of the amino acids being cleaved off. That amino group then ultimately can be loaded onto glutamic acid uh, by uh, transamination or amino transferase reactions, taking out the ketoglutarate as the carbon source. Uh, that alpha-ketoglutarate then uh, can also move the NH2 group that is normally found in those amino acids and make ammonia. And NH3 then uh, can be used for the urea cycle. And that process, that oxidative deamination reaction, which is carried out most commonly and with high level of efficiency by glutamate dehydrogenase, will take NAD or NADP converted to the, to the reduced forms, and it will take the amino group from glutamate and, again, produce free ammonia for the urea cycle, and then alpha-ketoglutarate, which goes right back in to make all those alpha-keto acids because of transamination. So I'm telling you, it's alpha-ketoglutarate and glutamate is the normal axis by which transamination, oxidative deamination occurs for the disposal of amino acids. Now, for the synthesis of amino acids, you again start with glutamic acid, uh, and then by transamination with various alpha-keto acids, you put on the amino group of all the other alpha amino acids. Uh, and in the same uh, sequence of events with transamination, make alpha-ketoglutarate. Alpha-ketoglutarate could pick up ammonium, ammonia, that is, NH3, and then by the oxidation of either NADH or NADPH via reductive amination via glutamate dehydrogenase, you will then make glutamate with the amino group now added at NH2 level and then oxidized NADP and NAD. So those are the synthesis of amino acids. And I just talked to you a moment ago about the disposal of amino acids. So again, just to give you a couple of these conduits, alanine and pyruvate will take alpha-ketoglutarate and make glutamate. Glutamate then, through another transamination reaction, will take OAA, convert that to aspartate, and then that glutamate back to alpha-KG. Okay? So that's, that could be a complete coupled transamination reaction, what I just explained to you. Pyridoxal phosphate is important here. So it's a coenzyme, and so some chem coenzymes, what they do, to remind everyone, is, that, is they will help stabilize certain organic chemical reaction intermediates. So some of these coenzymes will help to stabilize carbanion intermediates, in particular, in many diverse enzymatic reactions. And these are familiar. So thiamine diphosphate, uh, that is TPP, is the diphosphate ester of thiamine, otherwise known as vitamin B1. And pyridoxal phosphate, which is known as PLP, is a derivative, of course, of vitamin B6, which is pyridoxine. Now, many enzymes involved in metabolism of amino acids make use of PLP 
that is the pyridoxal phosphate as coenzyme. Basic function of PLP is to act as an electron sink. Reactions include amino acid racemizations, eliminations, additions, and retroaldol or retroclasin cleavages. So again, we're giving you a little bit of a discussion here of organic chemistry because that's important for you to understand. Biochemistry encompasses, right, the subset of that is all organic chemistry and then all the biology involved in utilizing all those organic chemical reactions. So that's what biochemistry is. It elevates both biology and chemistry to a higher stage. Now, the aldehyde group for pyridoxal phosphate um, is the important part of the coenzyme because it forms an imine or a shift base linkage with a lysine side chain on the enzyme. And this is now pyridoxal phosphate in what we call the aldamine linkage to a protein lysine residue. Obviously, this is a covalent bond. So the next step is an imine exchange as the amine nitrogen on the amino acid substrate replaces the enzyme lysine nitrogen on the imine linkage. And so this substrate coenzyme adduct is stabilized by a favorable hydrogen bond between the phenyl of the PLP and the amine, I mean, of the, uh, the imine nitrogen. Okay. So you go from taking the aldehyde uh, of, of, and then converting via aspartate, you uh, then generate water and you make the aldamine. Then the aldamine spontaneously makes the ketamine. And then finally, to from aspartate, you started with aspartate to oxalacetic acid to passing water over that bond. And then the amine then will go back the other way and you'll make it take alpha ketoglutarate, convert it now finally to the ketamine, the ketamine back to the aldamine. And now ultimately you take that amino group and you've converted uh, it now uh, to the amino acid glutamate. This is the total set of reactions for the PLP transamination reaction through those intermediates, the aldamine, the ketamine, and the finally the amine. Okay. So glutamate can also be converted to gamma aminobutyric acid, which is a neurotransmitter. That is a PLP-dependent enzyme, okay? and actually it's decarboxylating. Serine will lose ammonium, and the process also will be dehydrated, and you can generate pyruvate. That's also a PLP-dependent reaction. Serine to pyruvate and glutamate to GABA, or gamma-aminobutyric acid. Now, it's interesting that glutamate and GABA are both very important neurotransmitters that actually worked in opposing forces in the neurotransmission uh, sequence of events. We've talked about this in the past. So the PLP-independent amino acid racemase reaction occurs when you have the negatively charged intermediate, which simply you have an enolate form of a carboxylate. And you can make a, take an L-amino acid and racemate it to a D-amino acid that way by going through this negatively charged intermediate, which is actually an enolate form of a carboxylate, okay? Now, many other amino acid racemases actually require 
PLP, so one uh, pyridoxal phosphate. Now, once it's linked to PLP in the active site, the A proton of alanine can be abstracted by the active site base, and you go through a quinoanode intermediate in this process of this reaction. So the PLP coenzyme provides a much expanded network of conjugated pi bonds, pi electron bonds, over which the electron density can be delocalized all the way down to the PLP nitrogen atom. So PLP greatly facilitates this racemase reaction because of that. So in this reaction sequence, PLP is basically a chemical electron sink, and the coenzyme is extremely efficient at absorbing or if you want to put it another way, delocalizing this excess electron density on the deprotonated alpha carbon of the reaction intermediate. Okay, So PLP is helping the enzyme to increase um, what we say is the acidity of the alpha hydrogen by stabilizing the conjugate base. A PLP-stabilized carbanion intermediate is commonly referred to as this quinonoid intermediate. Now, in the remaining steps of the alanine racemase, which we just kind of went through, uh, reprotonation occurs on the opposite side of the substrate. And that's a very profound effect because now you have, yes, a D-amino acid, which was the purpose of the racemase. You went from an L-amino acid to a D-amino acid by using PLP. Okay, and doing that delocalization, um, which basically stabilizes that substrate. Okay, now <clears throat> most tissues will take ATP and ammonia, it's NH3, and the enzyme glutamine synthetase, and the conversion of, and then the energy uh, by the hydrolysis of the gamma phosphoryl of ATP to ATP plus PI will take glutamate to make glutamine. The glutamine will then translocate from any of those tissues, periphery to the liver, and then the enzyme glutaminase will pass water over that amide linkage and uh, uh, and form ammonia again. The ammonia will then be used in the urea cycle. The glutamate itself can, of course, uh, react with pyruvate to make alpha-ketoglutarate and alanine, or the glutamate can be converted directly to alpha-ketoglutarate and simply ammonia via the reaction I talked about a few seconds ago, which is the glutamate dehydrogenase. Once you make pyruvate, of course, uh, you can run that to synthesize glucose via gluconeogenesis. So this can be going from now any peripheral tissue to the liver. You've now made glucose. You've gone through gluconeogenesis by using the carbon source from any of those amino acids that you've shuttled via glutamine glutamate pathway. You've now converted that carbon from the glutamate because of these the alanine aminotransferase reaction, for example, to pyruvate. Pyruvate then pyruvate dehydrogenase uh, and pyruvate carboxylase will make acetyl-CoA and oxaloacetic acid or just the oxaloacetic acid in the gluconeogenic mode thus synthesizing glucose. The liver can release, release glucose because it has that phosphatase and glucose can then go to the muscle. Glucose can then is, is then uh, in the glycolytic pathway converted to pyruvate. Pyruvate and glutamate will then, via the 
alanine amino transferase, synthesize alanine, which will then re-enter circulation, go back to the liver, and that's the source of the alanine in that alanine amino transferase reaction. When you take alpha-KG and alanine and synthesize glutamate and pyruvate for gluconeogenesis. The same time now you've made that, uh, because you've been able to convert it to alanine, you've been able to eliminate that amino group and transport transported back through. Um, this ultimately will lead to, oh, okay, it looks like I'm out of time, um, which is convenient. So I'm going to stop here uh, and take up with the glutamate dehydrogenase reaction in some detail, because I want you to understand how that links into uh, utilizing carbon for the TCA cycle. So when we can get carbon to the TCA cycle from amino acid catabolism, we're able to link bioenergetics with proteolytic degradation, therefore protein digestion. And this is all going to link up later on to the discussion of the neurotransmitters that were generated, which of course are glutamate and GABA. This is Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry Studios on the 12th of July, 2021, saying bye for now.